Hi, and thank you for tuning in. You know, I don't know anybody doesn't have a hard time understanding what leadership is about. It has changed in the 21st century. And because it has changed, you know, there's not a lot of information out there that pulls it all together so that you have the steps you need to be the best leader that you can. Leadership is all about influence. And this podcast is about helping you understand how to influence others and to build the collaborative team that provides you the inclusive, high-performing workplace that you are looking for. Whether this is the first job you've had as a leader, whether you're an individual contributor, or you've been in leadership for 30 years, there is something for you on this particular podcast. It's called Remarkable Leadership Lessons, shared by Denise Cooper and her friends. And if you like, you can always go over to my website and pick up other gems that will help you become a remarkable leader. When we talk about going to school and being educated, when we're children, we're very dependent on what the Board of Education, what our teachers, what our parents, what everyone else thinks is important for us. And usually it's because it's something that has been a life lesson for them, and they feel like that's a life lesson for you. But as we've looked back over history, and certainly these last five, six, seven years, we've we've learned that history has not been as inclusive as we would like it to be. And the fact that we don't have some voices heard actually doesn't bring the richness of the fabric of being an American to light. This country was founded on the fact that we had a bunch of people, diverse people, and they were all here. Some of their voices were heard, some of their voices were omitted. And I think it's time for us to put on our big girl um, shorts, panties, and big boy t-shirts, muscle shirts, and that we step up to the plate and we begin to open our minds such that, that we understand the true richness of our history. And then we begin to glean lessons, life lessons about how we can move forward, how we can be successful today. Because I have to tell you, change is happening and it's happening at the most rapid uh, pace that we've ever seen. And a lot of people are trying to catch their footing. And I think history has a lot of of lessons that can help us. This is not the first time that we've been in a place where we're, we're seeing issues around moral crisis, ethical crisis, decisions around what we should and shouldn't do to make this world inclusive and welcoming to everyone who is here. Today, I am talking about my new friend, Lee Wind. I found out about Lee because he wrote a book called Red and Green and Blue and White, and it's received five-star trade reviews, and the New York Times praised it as beautiful. His book has been named uh, Top Five Independent Published Young Adult Books for 2018. Queer is a $5 bill, I think is the one that was um, published that way or noted that way. He also runs a popular blog, I'm Here, I'm Queer. And he guess what? He's joining the podcast world. So he's going to tell you all about those things. Lee, how are you this morning? I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much. I did not do your background justice because I think it's important for people to understand 
Um, a couple things. One is we do live in hypersensitive times and people are trying to find their way around this idea of true inclusion, not just whether you're, you know, ethnicity or race or gender, gender spectrum, et cetera, but neurodiversity, you know, um, how do we help people who are um, ableist differently than others? How do we really tackle this question of how do we get the best from everyone? How do we hear their voice and allow that voice to shake shape in our world. So tell me, tell me a little bit about the book, your newest book, I should say, Red and Green and Blue and White. And also, why did you decide to write a history book about gay people who have made some contributions that I had to tell you was mind blowing for me? But I also felt that way when I found out about African-American history and felt cheated Mm -hmm. um, because I went through school and the only things I found out about were everybody who was killed, murdered, died and sacrificed to bring forth freedom. So what's your story? All right. That was there's so much. I'm very excited, but I want to I want to circle back for a second to the idea that real inclusion is not about fighting just for you, the rights of the group that you're part of. I mm-hmm. think that I'm gay and and I feel like so much of my journey was realizing that I needed to be an ally to all the other people in the sort of like alphabet soup of our queer community, which now is LGBTQIA2+, but also to women and to people of color and indigenous people and disabled people and kind of everybody that isn't getting a fair shake in our society. And really doing the research for No Way They Were Gay, um, which is the nonfiction book that um, sort of has the profiles of the men who love men and the women who loved women and the people who loved without regard to gender and the people who lived outside the gender binary. I was stunned at the story of Bayard Rustin, who was gay and uh, openly gay and black and was the man that sort of taught Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about um, nonviolent protest. He was the organizer of the famous March on Washington, where Dr. King gave his amazing I Have a Dream speech. And later in his life, in 1986, Bayard was um, was interviewed and he was asked uh, if he had any advice for other like Black gay activists. And he said this, and I'm going to do this a lot because so much of what I want to do is like ra- bring the voices from the past forward, because I feel like we have all these hundreds of years of historians that have sort of hidden the fact that there were, there was any diversity in history at all. So yeah, it's like, yeah. so like, let, let me, let me, let me share something that Bayard said, because it just is so inspiring. The most important thing I have to say is that they should try to build coalitions of people for the elimination of all injustice. Because if we want to do away with the injustice to gays, it will not be done because we get rid of the injustice to gays. It will be done because we are forwarding the effort for the elimination of injustice to all. And we will win the rights for gays or blacks or Hispanics or women within the context of whether we are fighting for all. That's a quote that we need to put up, but it's also a quote of, I think when we talk about inclusion, that is the definition of inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. I I got goosebumps when I read that. I was like, that's exactly how I feel. And it took me so many years 
decades to learn that lesson. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, that's from 1986, which at this point is like, you know, history, which is crazy enough. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember 1986, but um, yeah. So, so, I find that there's incredible inspiration in history. Um, the picture book that you mentioned, Red and Green and Blue and White. It, so it, in 1993 in Montana, in a small town, there was um, pretty much everybody was celebrating Christmas. And there was one family whose house was decorated for Hanukkah. And um, in the middle of the night, someone threw a stone through their window that had an electric menorah as a display. and it was actually the, the window of a little boy's room um, in that family. And uh, and two really interesting things happened. One is that the family, uh, the Jewish family, after they repaired the window, they had to decide, were they going to hide who they were or were they going to take the risk and put the decorations back up in the repaired window? And they chose to do that. They chose to, to, to put themselves forward and, and be a light. And then um, the little boy had a friend who sort of saw this and as a sign of solidarity, she drew a menorah, a picture of a menorah, and she put it up in the window of her home next to their Christmas decorations. And that idea really caught on. And um, the local newspaper published an editorial and sort of saying, hey, you know, if we all put up menorahs in, in solidarity, the idea that we all want to live in a pluralistic community together, that that what the true meaning of community is that we're not all the same. The mm -hmm. true meaning of community is that we can live together and celebrate our differences. And within three weeks, over 10,000 images of menorahs were displayed across this town and in schools and libraries and homes and businesses. And when the whole community stood up, the sort of haters back down mm -hmm. and in this little town love one. And I thought that was such a beautiful story. Mm -hmm. um, and I was looking for a way to tell it to really little kids, um, you know, that where, you know, you're sitting and you're being read a story, uh, an adult is reading the story to you. And I didn't want it to be scary. I wanted it to be empowering mm -hmm. um, because little kids know bad things happen in our world. And there's so much that they feel they have no control over. So the idea that like the, the little boy writes poems and the little girl does art and, you know, I'm kind of inspired by the true story. I told a fictional story that kind of dramatized it a bit. Um, but the heart of it is really that idea that like, we have to stand up for ourselves and when it's safe, we should stand up for others because that's truly how you move the needle. That's how you change a culture and society. And actually it's just so perfect, but can I share one more Bayard quote? Yeah. Because it speaks so much to the moment we're in right now in our country. All right, amazingly enough, also from 1986. And, and this is crazy. So I went to the University of Pennsylvania and I was at, in college in 1986, but I was very closeted. I, I was completely hiding my authentic self. And I did not even know that Penn had a LGBTQ center. I think at the time it was probably just the, L, the, 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 the gay center or the lesbian gay center. We, we, weren't, we weren't aware enough to know that we had to include everybody else in our community. But evidently Penn had this queer center and Bayard came and spoke at Penn while I was there. Like mm. I could have gone and seen it, but I didn't even know. And I discovered this, you know, years and years later. And it was so 
like, man, would have that changed my life? All right, yeah. here's, what, here's what Byron said. The fact of the matter is that there is a small percentage of people in America who understand the true nature of the homosexual community. There is another small percentage who will never understand us. Our job is not to get those people who dislike us to love us. Nor was our aim in the civil rights movement to get prejudiced white people to love us. Our aim was to, to try to create the kind of America, legislatively, morally, and psychologically, such that even though some whites continued to hate us, they could not openly manifest that hate. That's mm. our job today, to control the extent to which people can publicly manifest anti-gay sentiment. I mean, he could have said that yesterday. Yeah. Because, because what happened after Obama with, with Trump is that the country, we're going backwards, right? Like we, we, and we need to get back to the kind of America where, you know, psychologically, legislatively, morally, people cannot openly express their racism. They cannot openly express their misogyny. They cannot openly express their homophobia. Like that's the crux of it. It's like, it suddenly it became cool for these jerks to like, be bigoted. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's not. I mean, we, we maybe we didn't recognize the, the level or the extent of the bigotry still existed. But I thought that that really states it so well. Like we need to get back where, okay, people can have their prejudices, but they need to shut up about them and they need to acknowledge. I know. And this, this goes into the whole thing that's happening politically with the book banning mm -hmm. and with the, the gerrymandering and the taking away of people's ability to vote. Mm -hmm. It's all because, you know, the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, it, you know, we are already, I think under, I believe it's under 18. We are now majority not white mm -hmm. um, as a country. And, you know, those numbers are going to increase and go mm -hmm. up. And so this is sort of like desperate power grab by the people in power to hold on to their privilege and deny so even the basic idea of democracy, you know, they're, they're not interested in democracy, they're interested in power. And it kind of, it's all connected. And we all have to recognize that the attack on women's, you know, autonomy over their own bodies is connected to Florida stopping children from learning about African American history, which is connected to the book banning that's happening across the country, targeting books with black characters and, and themes and history and also queer characters mm -hmm, and history. Mm -hmm. um, it's all connected. And it, I think it all goes back to that buyer quote, like, wow, we have got to get back not to the America that they idealize, which is when they had all the power and the other voices weren't heard at all. We need to, yeah. we need to fight for what the civil rights movement was fighting for to create the kind of America legislatively, morally, and psychologically such that people could not openly express their bigotry. Yeah. And in, in other kinds of ways, I, I think it is, you know, at some point we really have to wrestle with this idea of what does inclusion mean? Mm. Because I don't think we've actually had that conversation in places. Uh, we certainly haven't had, or at least I'm not aware that many companies are having that conversation from an HR point of view. What does inclusion really mean? The dominant conversation is always about money, um, products or customers, but it's rarely about what does inclusion mean on all fronts. And because we keep going, and, and I think in some ways we have started this whole inclusion movement 
more from a, a, let's make sure this group is done and this group is done and this group done and this group done. We're not teaching each other how to hear each other, look for the commonalities and create a place where we all feel included, but it doesn't mean just because I'm included means I get everything I want. Yeah, and it makes me think of the word belonging also, how mm-hmm. there's a lot of DEI work now that that is um, kind of highlighting that it's it's one thing to be in the room and it's one thing to 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 feel like you're welcomed in the room. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's a yet another to feel like you belong in the room. Yeah, and and and, and what does that mean it, from an inclusion point of view? Because for me, belonging is is almost like psychological safety. So Brene Brown says that the only person that can actually create psychological safety is you. You can be in an environment where you're going to kind of step up and you're going to decide that that's it. But only you can say, I trust that if I step up, if I speak out, if I show up, that whatever the whatever happens is worth it and I belong and my voice belongs in this particular room. And so for me, this idea of belonging really has it really sits in the place of I can say you're welcome here. You know, you can come to a room of straight white people or straight all kinds of people, right? And we can all say, oh you Lee, you're you belong. You we love to have you. But if you come into the room feeling like you don't belong, there's not a lot that we can do other than welcome you that's going to make you feel safe. And so working on that, and I think a big piece of it has to do with the fact that we don't understand our history. We don't understand that we that we did, we were in places all the time, that this is not a new concept. And that leads me into, you know, this one, that your latest book. And, and I want you to talk about No Way They Were Gay, Hidden Lives and Secret Loves. Where did that come from? Why did you decide to go through the history and say, yeah. you know what? Let me pull this up. Okay, so thank you. Uh, I I thought history was incredibly boring when I was in school. It was like names and dates to memorize, and it, it just had nothing to do with me. You know, this closeted gay Jewish kid growing up outside Philadelphia, child of immigrants. Like, I just couldn't. It couldn't have been less interesting to me. So the fact that I grew up to write a history book cracks me up. Um, <laughs> so I I was closeted from age 11 to age 25. 11 was when I actually figured out, oh, I think I like like other guys. And um, and then within 30 seconds realized I needed to keep that a secret because I didn't feel safe. I didn't, I thought my family would reject me and I didn't, I didn't know what, it just seemed way too scary. So I dated girls through high school and college and grad school um, and always sort of like, I judged that it was the right thing to do. It's what my parents wanted. It was what society wanted, but I didn't feel what I was supposed to feel. Fast forward 10 years, um, I go to a lecture and this gentleman is talking about the letters that Abraham Lincoln wrote Joshua Fry Speed that convinced him and a bunch of other people that Abraham was in love with Joshua. And I was like... What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. How can that possibly be true? Abraham Lincoln is on Mount Rushmore. He's on the $5 bill. He's mm-hmm. on the penny. I don't know how this is possible. Um, but I couldn't get the idea out of my mind. So the next week I went to the library and I got out this book that was a very slim not- volume. It was called um, Joshua Fry Speed, Abraham Lincoln's Most Intimate Friend. And I, I wasn't much of a student of history, right? So I was just sort of like, I looked, I kind of paged through it. And like the first half was just 
him, the, the historian talking. And I was like, boring. So I flipped to the second <laughs> half of the book and it's the letters, it's the primary sources. And I was like, okay, this is at least Lincoln writing speed. So let me see what he says. And so I kind of randomly flipped to a page and I read this line. You've now been the husband of this woman for eight, for eight months. And I need to ask you a question. Are you now in feeling as well as judgment, glad that you're married as you are? I was like, wait, that's an echo of me. That's, a, that's exactly mm. how I felt. And then Lincoln goes on to say, you know, um, from anybody but me, this would be an impudent question not to be tolerated, but I know you'll tolerate it from me. Please tell me quickly. I feel very impatient to know. So we don't have the answer, but we, we do know that it was less than four weeks later that Abraham married Mary Todd. So that got me started and I started to get into it. And I was like, okay, so Abraham and Joshua lived together for four years. Joshua moved back to Kentucky, married this woman, Fanny. And there's this flurry of correspondence between these two men that I think makes it incredibly clear that they were in love mm -hmm. um, with each other and not mm -hmm. with the women that, that they were married or, or about to be married to. And it was like, okay, I don't think I'm like as great as Abraham Lincoln, but it was like, oh my gosh, there in history is a reflection of me, mm -hmm. you know? And I'd never, ever had that before. And then I was like, I just started reading voraciously all the primary sources as much as I could. And I, I became completely convinced that Abraham mm -hmm. was in love with Joshua. Mm -hmm. um, it answers so many questions. And then I was like, okay, I want to write a novel about this. You know, I want to write a novel about a kid today that's closeted and inadvertently dating a girl. And he sort of discovers the same thing that I discovered about Abraham Lincoln has the same goosebump moment. And he decides he's going to out Abraham Lincoln mm -hmm. to change the world. And it just mm -hmm. blows up in a huge conservative firestorm and media backlash. And, um, and he has to sort of navigate his way through. And so that was the novel Queer as a $5 Bill because Lincoln's on the five. But when I was writing the novel, there was so much evidence that just kept coming up. And I was like, you know what? I want to write a page turning novel. I don't want to write a nonfiction book, but there's all this evidence. I'd love to put all the evidence together and do something else with it. And I was like, well, what is that? And again, I didn't like history that much. And I thought, well, for me, learning about Lincoln and Speed was sort of like the first crack in this facade of history, right? Like we teach the yes. way history is taught in our country today. It's like the stories of rich, white, able-bodied, heterosexual men from Europe. <laughs> mm. And it's way more than that. History is way more than that. And like, as soon as you see like, whoa, wait, there's, there's a piece missing, you sort of like, it, the whole thing crumbles and you're like, whoa, it all opens up in this most beautiful way. Mm -hmm. And you see all these reflections of all these stories and the intersectionality of our, of, mm -hmm. our, of the identities of people that were really important in history. And I thought, ah, that's the book I want to write. Mm -hmm. So I started compiling, getting, getting many, many more stories. And so basically, No Way They Were Gay is uh, really in-depth 12 chapters. Um, men who loved men, women who loved women, uh, some people who loved without regard to gender, and then uh, people who lived outside gender, the gender binary, as we as we see it today, and um, and then there's like twelve more stories, kind of like peppered throughout because I couldn't resist; they were too good. Um, <laughs> but it's also uh, written and, from a child's point of view, so it's a well, it's it's written for ages eleven and up, yeah, because yeah. Um, it's and, and really I think that people are like, and and this is the big thing that that the um, conservative you know, the people that are trying to hold on to their power are saying is that you it's inappropriate to talk to children about queerness. Because mm -hmm. they're like, don't talk to my kid about sex. Okay, so talking about queerness is not talking about sex. And this is mm -hmm. the problem with the word homosexual. We should never have agreed to the word homosexual, because it makes 
everybody outside of the community focus on sex as the thing that, that defines us. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, and they're uncomfortable. I mean, okay, for all your listeners, do you want to think about your parents having sex? No, it's gross, right? Like, like <laughs> we're really weird about sex in our country. So I feel like we'd be having very different conversations if we focused on love rather than sex. So mm-hmm. what holds me and my husband uh, and our, do- our adult daughter together as a family is love, which is the same love that holds everybody else's families together. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if the word wasn't homosexual, if the word was homolovual, it would be really transformative, right? Mm-hmm. So like we have to think about like the language we're using in so many in so many realms. And this you know goes back to other things too, like not to get into a, a complete like cul-de-sac, but pro-life, we should never have accepted that language because mm-hmm. they're not pro-life. It's, they don't care about the baby once it's born. They have no mm-hmm. interest in feeding that child or educating that child. It is control of women's autonomy. Mm-hmm. It is controlling women's bodies. So like mm-hmm. the language we use is really, really critical and we could do better. People that care about inclusivity, people that care about wanting to you know, make a better world for all, we should be more thoughtful about the language that we, we go with. So I was compiling all these stories and I was getting all excited because it was like, what interesting footnotes about history, right? Like, ooh, Abraham Lincoln, that's kind of cool that he was a guy in love with another guy. And I just, all the stories like Eleanor Roosevelt and Mahatma Gandhi, Gandhi blew my mind. I was like, Gandhi was in love with another man? What? Um, But in fact, there's a Pulitzer Prize winning author who wrote a very long biography about Gandhi and two pages in it talked about Gandhi's soulmate. And Mm -hmm. that was actually Gandhi's words. It wasn't Joseph Lollifels. And this German Jewish architect, Hermann Kallenbach. So I was reading, you know, all of Gandhi's writings are available for free online for anybody who wants to read them. I went and I read over 200 letters back and forth between Gandhi and Kallenbach over a pretty long period of time. And I had this kind of cool epiphany, which was that up until then, you know, all these people that I had been researching, I just thought, oh, interesting footnote. But then I'm reading the letters back and forth between Gandhi and Gandhi studied as a lawyer. And there's even a love contract between Gandhi and Herman where they pledge love and more love between them, such love as they hope the world has never seen. And I thought, okay. And then Gandhi also had this amazing quote, um, you worship a being, a single entity as Allah, and another adores him as Kuda. I worship him as Ishwar. How does anyone stand to lose? You worship facing one way, and I worship facing the other. Why should I become your enemy for that reason? We all belong to the human race. We all wear the same skin. We hail from the same land. But it, again, it's back to this idea of inclusion and belonging of what harm or what does it do to me? For you, as he said, turn your back one way and I turn mine another way to worship. What harm does it do? Absolutely. And and the fact that Gandhi wrote that while he was in love with another man who was Jewish, mm-hmm. that cannot be a coincidental, I mm-hmm. think. Like mm-hmm. I look at that and I see that that probably had something to do with Gandhi's immense breakthrough for humanity right right and then and then you look at like eleanor roosevelt and how you know the love of her yeah she was married to fdr and they had kids but fdr had his own relationship with somebody else and she had a relationship with eleanor had a relationship with this woman lorena hickok Mm -hmm. who was a reporter and it went on for decades Mm -hmm. and it was this passionate love affair 
And when FDR died, Eleanor became the special ambassador to the UN and she led the fight for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Like, again, I don't think that's coincidental that she was a woman in love with another woman and had that sort of outsider perspective and maybe respect uh, to sort of take on the mantle of like leading the entire United Nations in this statement about the universal human rights that everybody should have should have like suddenly history starts to open up like a, like this amazing flower and you get so I got so I get so excited because <laughs> it's not a footnote it's part of the fabric of why we have the culture we have well okay one more story okay, okay so over 2,600 years ago, this famous poet, her name was Sappho, and she lived on an island called Lesbos, which is where we get the term lesbian, because Sappho was famous for two things. She was famous for loving other women and uh -huh. composed poems about that. And she was also famous for being the most incredible poet. And poets back then were like, you got to think of like beat poetry, right? Like they were like rock stars. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't, they didn't sit and write it in a book or something. They like performed their poetry. Mm -hmm. They accompanied mm -hmm. themselves on a musical mm -hmm. instrument. They were like Madonna, Lady Gaga, Britney Spears, like mm -hmm. all rolled into one. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so all the other male poets, she was the first female poet, right? The first, the first famous, famous female poet. All the other male poets up until that time, basically their poetry was about like, sort of like expressions of sort of toxic masculinity. Like they were like, mm -hmm. the most beautiful, powerful thing in the world is an army going off to battle, is mm -hmm. a fleet of warships, is cavalry charging. Sappho had a poem that pretty much has survived almost intact. And um, in it, she talks about how that's not true that the most beautiful thing on the dark earth is the face of the woman she loves at Ectoria, flashing radiant, than all of the force of infantry and full display of arms. This idea that love was more important than power really resonated in people's hearts for centuries. And so in France, 800 years ago, when they wrote Sleeping Beauty, what's the thing that broke the evil spell? It was the kiss of true love. Down to the last few decades of Disney movies, what breaks the evil spell? The kiss of true love. If you stop at anybody on the sidewalk and you ask them what's the most powerful thing in the universe, they're going to say the kiss of true love, mm -hmm. right? They're going to say love is the most powerful thing in the universe. Mm -hmm. And we all, we all believe that. Mm -hmm. And we believe it because Sappho was in love with this woman, Anactoria. But mm -hmm. we've sort of lost that piece of the history of it and that connection. But to reclaim it is very exciting, right? Because mm -hmm. like it's so inclusive and it's so amazing. And it's like, yeah, I, I feel that in my heart. The most important thing in my life is love. And we feel it because of Sappho. It's just like, <laughs> and I just kept saying, no way, they were gay? And like over and over and over. And finally, I was like, you know, it's not a bad title. <laughs> <laughs> no way, they were gay. Hidden lives and secret loves. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, I don't know which is more fun, listening to you tell these stories or watching your face. And I really apologize, podcast listeners, because you cannot see the joy in this man's face because he is telling these stories. It's just so like, I mean, look, if you know that you have a past, then you believe that you deserve a place at the table today. Mm -hmm. And if you know that you deserve a place at the table today, if you're sitting at the table today, then the future is 
infinite, the possibilities. Yeah. And that's what I want for kids. I don't want anyone to have to go what, through the 14 years of hiding their authentic self. Mm-hmm. So like everything I'm doing is like trying to be like, let's create a safer place. Let's create a safer world. Let's empower kids with this real stories from history, these voices from history, and let them know that they're not alone. That, that you know, the queer community does a pretty bad job of saying that history that we, we talk a lot about Stonewall, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. cheers mm-hmm. to the, you know, the trans women that led that fight. But that was 1969. Mm-hmm. Queer people did not spring up out of the ground in 1969 in lower Manhattan. Like we have been around for <laughs> thousands and thousands that. of years all around the world in every culture. And that is very inspiring to me. Yeah. I, I also think that, you know, I'd, I'd like to say one of the things that's beautiful about this is that I I would not want any group, particularly the, the gay community or the queer community, to go through some of the things that we in the African-American community went through, which was we we didn't know the stories and all the good things that Black people contributed to and how we overcame so much and, and that this, this cycle of, of inclusion and exclusion is just that. It is a cycle that has been propagated for millennials. We seem to, you know, it's, it's this touching the space of where do I fit and how do I show up and whether I can show up. It just, if you look through history, it's the same thing over and over and over. And too often, I think a lot of it has to do with, we we talk about the people who died, the people who were, you know, hung or raped or burned at the stake or the worst things that we can do in humanity. And there's a lot of shame and blame. And I don't, that's not me. And if you come at history from a shame, blame, and that's not me, I think I believe that that is also why I don't want to embrace history. Mm. I don't want to see an inclusive history. I don't, you know, because it's all we talk about is the shame, the atrocities that we did to one another. And who wants to own that? Yeah, it's all about trauma. It's not about joy. And it's like, we need to surface the stories of joy, too. And there's so much that is wonderful about history that we all can stand on the shoulders of all kinds of people um, that identify like us, who who are different than us, who their stories are the same. And I think that the power is actually in doing what you did to lift up the most beautiful stories of history. And to have our children embrace that as a way forward. Thank you. And I will say that they're, they're, they're not all perfect people. And I think that that's really important for kids to know, too, that people in history were complicated and they, they did sometimes bad things. And but that didn't mean that they weren't good people or that they right. weren't worthy people or worthy people to learn about. Like there was one character um, that is highlighted um, who went by the, the name, the Lieutenant Nun. Um, and, you know, 1600 Spain, they um, had a woman's body. They were raised in a convent. They escaped. They went to Central America and they, as, as a man, and they fought and they were kind of, they embodied a lot of toxic, toxic masculinity of the time. Um, they murdered a few people. They were caught for one of the murders and they confessed that they actually weren't 
that, that they didn't have a male body and, um, and they ended up becoming world famous at that time um, and got a special dispensation from the Pope to continue dressing as a man. Um, and they were a giant celebrity of their time. I mean, they were not the loveliest person. They were, but it's fascinating. And to, to learn about them and to learn about Hatshepsut, a pharaoh that over 22 years changed their gender presentation from, you know, the daughter of the king, the wife of the king, to actually uh, the king herself, the co-king, and then senior co-king. And, like, and you can see statues of Hatshepsut change over the 22 years from presenting as a woman to presenting as sort of an in-between gender mm -hmm. to presenting completely as a man. Like to know that these stories exist, it, it is that like, I know my history, and then I know I have a place at the world at the table today. And I know the future can be anything. And there's this idea that like people being gender fluid is completely new. Like that's crazy in our grandparents' time that never happened. Well, right. <laughs> it's way back before your grandparents, it's been right. happening. Right. And that's, I think, very empowering. I, I just applaud what you're doing because it gives an idea. It gives something that yes, people are complicated. And when you say that, that this person did this or that or the other, it also brings up the other lesson that is important for me. And that is, you know, we talk a lot about forgiveness, but we don't always talk about redemption and forgiveness without redemption the ability to restore trust, to be able to be restored to a place where I'm not judged by my sins, but by judged by my deeds. Hmm. That's when you get trust. That's when we actually have gone full circle. And, and I talk a lot about, yes, it's great to forgive, but what does it take to redeem? Hmm. Yeah. And it also puts the onus on the other person, right? Exactly. Like Exactly. And then, because, and you know, it should be. yeah. And, and, and for the listeners, listen, think about this. Once you dub somebody as a jerk, when do you allow them to not be a jerk? A clock, you know, even a broke clock is right twice a day. But if you do, if you say it's a broke clock, you could never see when it's right. And that's often what happens with people. Once we decide that they've been dubbed a jerk, Everything they do and say is clouded or seen through a cloud of, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you, you, you know, how could you know anything? And this idea of forgiveness has to go along with redemption. And I love the fact that your book doesn't just paint a pretty face like our history often does, but it paints a complicated place where we learn the lessons of forgiveness, redemption, and that we still can have a seat at the table. I have one last question for you. After doing all of this, what's your what's your kind of your life lesson or guiding principle that reminds you of your humanity or that life ain't so bad? There's a beautiful quote by Anne Lamont in a book that she wrote about writing called Bird by Bird. And uh, in it, she says, lighthouses don't run all over an island looking for boats to save. Mm. They just stand there and they shine. And I think about that a lot because what I'm talking about, not everybody wants to hear it. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be a lot of people that disagree. I mean, Shakespeare wrote 126 love sonnets to another man, and um, you can read about it in any of the Shakespeare books, but there were for over 150 years, all the pronouns were changed. So it looked like he wrote them all to a woman. Not everybody wants to hear it. And that's okay. My job my my job is not to convince everybody that they're wrong about history and I'm right. What I want to do is I want to surface these voices 
I want us to set aside all the years of historians that have basically hidden it and lied. And I want to put out the primary sources. And I want to say, here's what it says. Here's what these people said themselves. Here's what I think. You make your own decision. You choose your own thing. I'm just going to like share. I'm just going to shine. I'm going to be that lighthouse. And I think right now it's very, our culture is very fraught with a lot of people trying to ban books. I mean, they're banning books because- But banning ideas. It's really more banning ideas and the the process of thinking. But all these kids have smartphones, right? Like they're not, it's not like they don't know that drag queens exist, Mm -hmm. right? They're banning books because books are empathy machines, right? Mm -hmm. If I read a book, I kind of get inside the character or, you know, I understand. I can see a reflection of our shared humanity in a way that maybe we don't achieve so well on social media. And so they're attacking books and they're attacking curriculum because those are the things they, they feel like they can, you know, tr- try to wrestle back any empathy for, for mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. So in this moment where No Way They Were Gay has been banned in a couple of states, it's been called obscene online, although it really, there's no sex in it. It's not mm-hmm. CSI history. It's all about love and identity. In this moment, I decided, okay, well, what can I do? And this goes back to that you were saying that I'm now a podcaster. Like, yeah, so I took the audiobook of Queer as a $5 Bill, that sort of fictional story about a kid discovering the letters that, between Abraham and Joshua, and I've made it a podcast. Um, and it's the idea is that it goes around the book banning. And it goes, it's just out there like a lighthouse for anybody to listen to. It's really for ages 13 and up. And it's for free. It's out there. Um, there's a free PDF download of the Lincoln chapter from No Way They Were Gay that lays out all the evidence about Abraham Lincoln loving another man. You can download that off my website. Um, and that's that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to like be that lighthouse and spread that light. Not everybody needs to listen to it, but hey, if you're interested, there's this cool, <laughs> there's this cool story online. It's going to release uh, every Thursday in June, seven episodes, seven chapters each uh, week. And then um, the, there are a few bonus episodes uh, that are really exciting. And one of them is the, um, the world premiere audio of the Lincoln chapter from No Way They Were Gay. And uh, so I'm excited about that. And we'll see. Right. I'm going to become a podcaster like you. <laughs> oh, my God. And so, okay, so two things. One, how can people find you? Okay, so um, Lee Wind, that's my name, L-E-E-W-I-N-D dot O-R-G. And, that's, and uh, that, that's where you get And the everything. name of your podcast? It's Queer as a $5 Bill, the podcast. All right. And I'm sure that you will be able to find that um, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Learn what puzzle piece you stand on and learn how you collectively can make a beautiful mosaic of what the tapestry of life is supposed to be about. So with that, guys, you know, every Thursday we have a new episode And I hope that you remember to like and share my podcast too. This is Denise Cooper, sharing remarkable leadership lessons with all my friends and listeners. And until next week, see ya. Thank you, Denise. I think, and thank you everyone listening. Well, as I said before, this is a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for following me. And if you really, really want to make things better and help me get the word out, please go like this wherever you're listening to your podcast. Follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. All of that's in the show notes. And for doing that, go to my website and click on the uh, network 
and you'll be able to get some free gifts that will help you figure out how to be the best leader that you can be. As I always say, if you like it, share it. If you don't like it, share it, because I guarantee it will definitely help you become the most remarkable leader you can be.